Hello and welcome to the Ghibli Rewatch series of the Overly Animated Podcast, where we'll be going through every Studio Ghibli movie chronologically from the beginning. I'm Dylan Heisen, and today I'm joined by Alex Bonilla. Hello. And April Collins. Hi there. Join us in rewatching or watching for the first time every Studio Ghibli movie now that they're available for streaming on HBO Max and Netflix in, in HBO Max United States, Netflix, everywhere else. New podcast every Wednesday as we go through the whole Ghibli catalog chronologically at overlyanimated.com. I'm a Ghibli expert joined by Coast with a variety of Ghibli experience here. Um, our second to last one in the Ghibli rewatch series here is we've reached the tale of Princess Kaguya. Uh, full spoilers for this film. Make sure you've seen Princess Kaguya, either dubbed or sub. Doesn't matter. We'll be talking both, primarily the subs, but watch whatever, and you should be fine for this podcast. Okay, so this is The Tale of Princess Kaguya, 2013 uh, film by Isao Takahata. Um, Takahata was in his late 70s for the eight-year production of this movie. Um, this was his last film. He died five years after the release of this movie. Uh, this movie is co-written by Rico Sakaguchi. Um, so another one of the, like, seems like a majority, if not almost all of these later Ghibli films are co-written by women, which I didn't know previously. Um, this is, so if you're unaware, you should be aware, but like maybe unaware to American or non-Japanese audiences, Kage is based on the 10th century Japanese folklore tale, the tale of the bamboo cutter. Um, this is the oldest Japanese narrative in ex- like that we know of. Um, so it's pretty kind of vital, vital context. It's like a very well-known Japanese folk tale that they are making a version of here. This is a fairly faithful adaptation of the tale, um, that Takahata does. Um, apparently, uh, this is maybe a Wikipedia thing, but they say this is the most expensive Japanese film ever made. Um, at least probably the one we know the budget of, I guess. Um, and, uh, I think was not very successful financially as Takahata movies tend to do. Um, but was very successful critically. One of those rare movies that has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, so let's get into Kaguya. Very excited about this one. Alex, uh, you've been on, I think, a majority of our Takahata podcasts here, and uh, we've reached the end of, uh, we've reached Takahata's final film. So what do you think of this? So um, up to now, the the Takahata oeuvre has been um, meandering, realist, and uh, digging into female stories for a lot of them. Um, This continues that that path. Um, It's definitely... Like obviously, uh, and also aesthetically interesting to watch, and I think that that's been the highlight. Like that, I the, the one thing that I knew coming into this is that like this is like more of a pencil drawn kind of kind of movie, and uh, maybe not as much as as Yamada's, but like it, it had its own unique style, and I really enjoyed it in in this movie. Um, I expect. There's there's one sequence in particular that like uses it to like full advantage. Uh, otherwise, it, it feels very consistent throughout, which uh, was you know a little bit of a surprise for Takahata. But uh, um, uh, sto- story wise, I think that it it really um it it's got a lot of uh, momentum going. Uh, Kaguya is uh they they do some interesting stuff with her character in terms of like uh, getting her, showing her struggle with uh, growing up. It, um, figuring out her her destiny, dealing with humanity and all. Um, the the first third of the movie that takes place in the rural areas, I really I really enjoyed. Uh, it definitely brought me back to like only yesterday in terms of like just how lovingly it portrays uh, rural life.
life and while at the same time like getting into like the you know the developing of human relationships um middle part uh, to me at least kind of sagged just because like the the the, sto- the the story stuff like you know the, having to do with suitors and all like it's not necessarily something that I'm that interested in, but I know that that's a big part of the original folktale, and we got to stay, uh, uh, you know, faithful to that. So that that's a choice to make. They did what they could with it, um, but I think that once we get to the turn in the in the third act, and you get the revelation about uh, about her character. I think that it, it picks back up. It, it definitely um it hits all the emotional notes that <laughs> that you want out of it. Um, that's another strength of Takahata. Like when when uh, especially. Harkening back to Grave of the Fireflies, like when we need to get into melodrama, he he can do it. Um, so, so I, I think that uh, Kaguya was uh, a, a it was a very well made movie. It was it definitely has its high points. Um, it's not a, at least for me like that. I I do have my my nitpicks, which like keeps me uh, from like saying like it's the best Takahata movie. But like it, I I see uh, I understand why there was so much praise because I do remember like even back uh, years ago like the praise that came over. I remember there was some arguments about like. The fact that that this was snubbed for the Oscar, I feel like, was the first time I was w- aware of like people being sick of Pixar and Disney winning all the awards, like because uh, because of Gaguya. So like uh, I understand the the praise that this gets, and I think we'll go through well, a lot of what makes this movie special. And uh, yeah, but it, it was it's 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 it was a really good movie um, with uh, definitely some um, particular stuff related to Kaguya herself that that I, I enjoyed the most. Nice. Yeah, was nominated for the best animated feature, but did did lose as uh, all Ghiblis have except for Spirited Away. Um, more a reflection of the Oscars than the Ghibli films, I would say. Uh, April, what did you think? And yeah, this is both your guys' first time, I believe, with this movie. What did you think of Kaguya, April? So, uh, because I guess like because I had watched like pre or Takahata like movies previously, like to this one. Um, on this podcast so I I kind of like knew a little bit better of what to like I guess not expect if that makes any kind of sense um I love that this is based off a Japanese folktale um and I like with that I think that like the animation like style that they chose and everything like that was just gorgeous like it looked like it came off of a scroll um which I loved like I I thought it was very like pretty I really connected with Kaguya's like emotional um like i guess like from her like being you know like sort of learning in the rural world and then even with like um the the part of it with like all of the suitors and everything like that i was just like like i feel you sister like (laughs) so like i i connected to the movie a little bit more than i thought i was going to um and I, I like, I liked the music. I thought it was very like it added to everything, especially whenever she was playing her instrument thing that I can't remember now. Um, I just thought that was very, very beautiful. I watched the dub version of this, by the way. Oh. So <laughs> I'm like stepping outside my comfort zone and l- watching the dub versions because I know you guys are like we're all, you know the majority of us prefer subs um i thought the dub cast was really great uh i looked it up or saw it in the credits afterwards as well and there was a couple of like larger names and i was like huh didn't catch it which again i think speaks to like the 
the voice acting that goes into it. Um, if I, if you're a big name and I don't recognize your voice, then I think you've done a good job <laughs> for the most part, unless it's really bad. So I, 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 I really liked this movie. I even like teared up at the end just a little bit too. Um, so I, I liked it. I, I enjoyed this movie a lot. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And I noticed, I've not seen the dub, but I've noticed that the, like the five random suitors are all voiced by kind of pretty big names, so they got some mm-hmm. uh, the, uh-huh. a lot of a lot of actors for the these oh. minor parts here. One one dub question I have the the, the her 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 like uh, assistant lady did she sound more like Bubblegum or like Starfire like what, what voice did you get out of her? Neither, which it was very strange. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, that that is Hinden Walsh. So like, did she be like the one voice that I'd probably like keep an ear out for? But okay, okay. The, I'm trying to think of which voice I was the most like if there was one that I was the most distracted by the, but there wasn't really any like I couldn't like pick it out and then I was like oh okay because the Kaguya, Kaguya is um, Chloe yeah, she's Chloe Grace Moretz yeah. yeah so and I was like oh okay <laughs> yeah, nice yeah I, I watched like a second of it for uh, like a scene with her and mom mom's Mary uh Steenberg, Steenbergen, who I who I know, so I, I, yeah, I noticed some of the the voices in there. Yeah, a lot of uh, big names. We can go through it, I think, as we um, bring up some characters potentially. Uh, Lucy Liu in this, Daniel Day Kim, John Cho. Interesting, mm-hmm. um, nice. Uh, so yeah, I've always been a pre- really big fan of uh, Kaguya. Um, I'll be very uh, some very high praise there. I think this is an incredible, gorgeous movie. I think this is a masterpiece. Uh, I think this is Takata's magnum opus. Um, I think you'll hear this from a lot of people. I'm certainly on board. I think this is like Takata's one film that finally can rival some of Miyazaki's greats. Like I think this is potentially a top five Studio Ghibli film. Um, I think this is one of the most gorgeous movies ever created. I've said this like a bunch on this podcast, but it's especially true of this one. And like uh, this is kind of a culmination of Takahata's uh, exploring different animation mediums. And he uh, does stabilize it a little bit here, but still has a few experimental scenes, which are absolutely incredible. Um, I think the the ending was hugely affecting for me. So like uh, this is this is a little bit more of a traditional story than uh, his previous two, which were a little out there. Um, but, uh, it keeps the emotional resonance that he gets from being freeform while still having like the stability of the narrative and the characters. Like, I really loved the ending. I think, uh, he has some incredible third acts, I think in every single one of his movies. Um, so I think that's a big strength of him. Uh, I read the ending as a commentary on the human condition, which I know is very generic, but uh, I think that's kind of what this movie is generally supposed to be about. Um, and all of Takata's films, um, I wrote down this, like, uh, Kagi is a summation of all of Takata's films on the human condition. He's made films about the extreme anguish and sadness, uh, just, just extreme anguish and sadness, such as Fireflies and Pompoko, I think for a lot of it. Um, he's also made films about joy, extreme joy, such as like Only Yesterday and Yamada's, I think for large amounts of those films. But I think all of those films do kind of explore the extremes of human emotion, um, in their own way. This film is one last encapsulation of his exploration of what makes us human, the good and the bad, but always feeling. Um, so I think that's, that's, I think what my read on what he's going for here. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting point you make about like this being a common theme with Takahata because uh, this did remind me a little bit of Pompoko in terms of 
like mm. it, it like part of the realism is like showing that life it does kind of beat you down sometimes like the like I, I mentioned in my initial thoughts that the second act like feels kind of saggy but at the same time i think that it does fit in line with takahata's deal of like look like you're gonna go through a lot of stuff in your life that like beats you down that like get like like sucks the energy out of you and like that's a, like kaguya like we had the first the first part where like she's introduced so like this is the joy that you can experience in in human life like being able to like have relationships with people then you get taken into the quote real world and you get uh, you get sucked in by all the the norms and uh, and uh, and uh, traditions that you have to follow, and that can take a lot out of you to the point where you're not where you're not getting the most out of life. Mm. And then the third act shows like even even through all that, she still wants to be a human because she she wants to take the highs with the lows. Mm. Like she uh, she comes to a conclusion that like that is preferable to just forgetting pain and suffering. Like that's not the life that she wants. And I think that that's a that's a big thing with Takahata. Like, yes, life can suck sometimes, but also life can be really really great, and you can you can still appreciate the the victories in life. Uh, this, uh, again, very, that's a very similar message to Popoko, actually. Like the the. Uh, he, to the point where like this could be construed as a bit of a sad ending where like she uh, does have like you know yeah oh yeah yeah. like she she does she does leave she's forced she's forced off of this but like on the whole the message is like kind of like you know reassuring in a way like yeah like that there there is a way to like live life and like like hang on to the stuff that makes you makes you happy even if you have to deal with so much trash in the middle of your life yeah so i think all all that definitely true and definitely what he's going for and yeah the second i agree the second act is maybe the hardest to watch but it's all about the anguish of life and is a lot about dealing with social norms in life and i think Probably Takahata has his um, a little bit of like a feminist characterization twist in in his telling on how he how he conveys the set, the second part of the movie and all of Kaguya's experiences. Um, but yeah, it's it's about this is the anguish and it's incredibly striking when she still wants to live and be human in spite of everything, all of the sadness she's been through. Um, it's because it's better to to feel. You'll feel bad. You'll feel good sometimes, but it's better to feel it all than not to feel. I think is is definitely a, a big thing that uh, he the main thing that he's going for here, and I think a, a main thing from from all of his movies. I agree, Pompoko is like a clearest encapsulation. I think that's his his, his previous like epic kind of like this movie that's kind of going for this this wide range this uh, high level wide ranging storytelling. But I think it even goes back to Grave of the Fireflies. I think that's what he's he's mm-hmm. largely talking about there. Mm-hmm. They suffer. Like, immensely in that movie and still one of the highlights you feel is that they still feel joy through it even even through the incredible terrible their experiences they're going they're going through they still feel the joy of of living um and uh yeah i, I so i april how much how much did you i mean i think like her speech at the end is a is a big component of uh kind of this theme that that doc god is trying to to convey oh and i was going to say that uh I was going to bring start to bring in the uh, there's a documentary about this movie. I was very excited to finally see uh, behind the scenes on Takahata, um, which I haven't seen a lot of. But Isa Takahata and his tale of Princess Kaguya is an accompanying documentary for this movie. Um, he yeah, he, he talks about how he thinks uh, he interprets the ending of the movie as Kaguya dying. Um, so 
uh, like he, she goes back to the moon people, but her life as a human is over. And so I think it's kind of a representation of our lives. Like we will die one day, but, um, and we will go through pain, but it's, it's, you know, it's all worth it to experience the emotions that come with living. Um, I would say is, is the main, probably the main message that the movie's going for. Um, yeah, April, any, any thoughts on that? How much you took away that from the film? Oh, I definitely took away all of that. And also, uh, just to add to it as well, you kind of get a sense of um, sort of like how like everything is like cyclical is the word, I think. Mm. So like because she, you know, she comes to us in the beginning as, you know, this baby from the moon or I mean, she sort of transforms into a baby and then we see her go through an entire life process. Um, and then at the end, um, we, you know, we get that very like after she sort of like dies and goes back to the city of the moon, she we see that, like that image of her as a like a young child again. And whenever like I saw that, the first thing I thought of was how she talked. She talked about there was a there was a woman who um she knew that went to the earth um, and sort of did what she did as well. Mm -hmm. uh, But like, you know, was always sad because she wanted to go back. And I was like, I wonder if that's just like another, like sort of reincarnation of yourself that you're remembering. And like you, like you've held on to that memory through each sort of regeneration or yeah, regeneration that you've gone through. So I thought that was kind of like, like, even though like having the image of the baby at the end was sort of like strange, like that's kind of what I took away from all of that as well. So yeah, she's gone this time around, but she'll come back because you can't stay like you don't, you don't really get a choice. You kind like you go where you need to go or where you're summoned kind of thing. So. Yeah. Uh, I, it's, it's, I do think that's the most ambiguous part of the movie when she's, she's recounting what she remembered when she realizes she's a moon person and she recalls this princess on the moon. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I definitely interpret that as herself. Um, but I yeah. didn't, I didn't necessarily think of it as a reincarnation thing. Cause that's interesting. I will say there is a Buddha at the end of the movie who is the mm-hmm. leader, of the, the leader of the moon people. So, uh, I think that would play into, the the buddhism vibes you get uh, uh, like any amount of reincarnation but maybe just a a previous like i guess she is kind of reincarnating in a way when she puts on the 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 garment which uh makes her forget everything so Mm -hmm. just remembering her previous experiences uh, my my personal i mean uh, to be fair i did not really understand the shot of the baby i just thought like it was just like a 2001 a space odyssey thing (laughs) but like i I couldn't really fit that together but i will say that the the story of her like recalling the 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 woman on the moon and like she was talking about how like she saw her crying but and she thought to herself like what would make this person like feel so much about about the earth so like i i uh, like i i at least take it like oh like no there is like a different person who did this and because uh, in this moon society it seems that like emotion is deemed impurity like they t- the the people when they come down in that final scene they talk about like we will make you pure so like implying like the, this like feeling of pain and happiness is wrong per se so like she she's seeing this this woman crying it's like i, I want to see what causes that like well how what what would need to happen in your life to feel the, those kind of things 
And so like, uh, and so in that sense, it could be a little bit hopeful as well. If you think like, oh, like someone else will see her crying and will wonder the same thing. Like, well, why would this person be crying up on the moon where everything is great? Oh, like, uh, and, uh, and look into that. So like, it, it, again, like it's all intertwining, like pain leads to like, you can't have happiness without a little bit of pain. So <laughs> like, that feels like something Takahata's into. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, the main the main thing I think he's into, and vice versa. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 it's. I like these interpretations. It's unclear. It's possible if we we're more familiar with the the fable growing up, like uh, Japanese people are, we would have a better sense of that part of the movie. I will say it is a little bit without knowing the the, the bamboo cutter fable that well. It is a little uh, jarring when uh, she's like, "I'm a moon person," right? Um, but well, I'll, I'll say it's actually a it's a good move that they don't dive too much into that because then like it would be off into like sci-fi i think they keep it just vague enough that it still fits in like the folkloric yeah, side I think it feels like, yeah because I, I was i was like reading up on it a little bit and i like saw like other interpretations of that story like also like bring in like flying saucers and stuff and i'm like yeah like if we if we went down the sci-fi route it would be a different movie i'm not sure it would be a better movie i think i like <laughs> that it, 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 it feels totally fitting with the rest of the movie that it is like vaguely religious almost like dealing with like purity and uh, and the buddha you know so uh um so i i think it's we're better off not knowing too much about this moon society yeah i think so and yeah. i think i think it fits with the the original story is basically what he, pre- he presents the the outline of it um and it's like that's what, why she's a moon person because that's how the story works um and uh it's it's uh but it, it is interesting i think approaching it from an american audience i assume lens i think it's very probably very different than having grown up with the story and uh seeing a, a telling of it like this um but i'm sure takata makes it his own in his own ways and you know in spite of um in spite of uh this being a fairly straightforward adaptation i guess i have some some backstory on that uh we can bring in um Quotes from Colin O'Dell and Michelle LeBlanc from their book, The Studio, Studio Ghibli, The Films of Hayao Miyazaki, Nisa Takada. They say part of the reason for the unusual length of the film, referring to the fact that it's over two hours, uh, is that Takada embellishes the fairy tale. Part of the original story is very much plot driven, the discovery of the princess, the suitor's quest for her hand and her return to the moon. But Takahata added a number of elements, most notably Sutamaru's character, and chose to focus on the characterization. Um, so yeah, I think one, the biggest like narrative difference is Sutomaro as a character is, is added. And then I think the, the approach is, um, Takata wants to focus more on Kaguya as a person and dive into what she's going through and what she's feeling, um, would be, would be his, his main spin on, on what's happening. And I think that ties into his thematic approach of what he's trying to convey at the end with, with her speech and throughout the entire movie. Um, yeah, I, I want to I want to talk about the uh, okay. How, well, just briefly, I mentioned I thought this is um, Takata's magnum opus. I think this is a common thing you'll hear about this movie. He says um, in in the documentary, I don't. This is kind of like pulled into the opening of the movie. I don't know what the context for him saying this was, but he said, uh, "I'm not thinking that because it's my last work, I have to sum everything up and make this my magnum opus. It just came out that way. I suppose any of them could have been my last film, um, which I think." Uh, I, I kind of agree with because he's he, he's a similar message to for all of through all of his movies, um, and uh, it's uh, yeah. I mean, we we've been we've been going through Takata's movies. This is one of the big joys of uh, of this series for me was exploring Takahata in depth. It's not something I think these movies are not. 
except for this one, which I do think is probably the most accessible, maybe in Fireflies, maybe only yesterday a little bit. Like his his movies aren't as easily to be appreciated without diving into them in depth, I would say. The ones he creates at Studio Ghibli, because of course he did have a storied career, but even before coming to Studio Ghibli. Um and uh uh, so I think just just diving into all the aspects of this has been really incredible. And I think this movie like works even better as you see his progression of what he's trying to do artistically, thematically grow throughout the films he does at Studio Ghibli. Uh, you know, like I do think it's a similar story to the ones he's been telling. I think he conveys it in the, the, the best, most the best way thematically, the most gorgeous way with the animation. Um, so I love this as kind of a pinnacle of, of everything Takat has been doing. What do you think of that, Alex? Oh. Well, I want to live in the world where the, y- the Yamadas is the last movie he made. Yeah, he, he says in the documentary, he's like, I didn't think I was going to do another one after Yamadas. Well, like, I, I'm thinking, like, nobody would be... Co- I mean, the Yamadas is a good movie, but, like, it, nobody nobody would be calling it a magnum opus just because of, like, the way it works. Whereas Kaguya, like, it, it fits more in line with the Studio Ghibli Fair. Like, it's an epic uh, in a set in a... A setting that feels like removed from our time with some fantasy elements like that that's that's more in line and that's why like it feels very like it feels fitting is like that that's the way to go out on um also like with regards to, like this being around for a while it's just like from the Yamadas, like that opening sequence, like one of the first things is like uh, them c- cutting their mm-hmm. kid out of the bamboo. Yeah, that was so, also like, one... inspired by the same. <laughs> yeah, so, like I'm wondering, like, man, like it really, like he's just like on and off thinking about this story for like over a decade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. I read even even before that he'd been thinking of doing this movie since like the 70s or 80s. So definitely on his mind. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad I'm I'm glad he took all the time he he needed. Um, I will say also um related to like just overall contents, like I I did end up watching the the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness uh, after the Wind Rises, and yes. like they touched a little bit on Kaguya. Apparently, they want they originally were trying to have them both the Wind Rises and Kaguya yes, release simultaneously, mm-hmm. which is just insane to me because like to- yeah. Totoro and Grave is one thing. I mean that's insane in itself, but at least the lengths make sense. But um, the, this like both of those movies are really long, and also like now we're in like a box office focused world where like you really want two movies from your same studio cannibalizing each other. Like I just wonder what the thought process was. Oh, I, I, I think yeah. it's like the the last film of Japan, the two last films of Japan's two greatest animators ever. I think it's a I, huge I, event I, if that happens. I guess, but I, I think I, I think it's for the best that <laughs> they did not. Really it's possible financially. It. It's better, although this movie didn't. Uh, set the world on fire financially but you know this this movie they cover it yeah in both documentaries so the kingdom of dreams of madness yeah as, as always i would say that's my number one recommendation for a ghibli documentary number two i think would be this this one to see a lot of takahata and you see more of there's like a culminating scene in kingdom of dreams of madness of miyazaki and takahata actually talking and there's a few yeah, of them it, in this one in, in uh, this documentary of them talking it, it's um, very funny in kingdom that they keep talking about him but like he never shows up yeah. until like the very end and they get like a couple sentences out of him and that's it so just yeah, like well, he's, he's, he's like a looming figure but he never shows yeah. up it Do- doesn't talk a ton but as you learn in this they made a separate studio for the production of kaguya this movie so he's like in a different location uh oh. he, he needed a separate studio because he has a completely different animation process we'll get to that in a second that they they wanted to to get to um yeah april what do you think of this as uh as is takata's final film and as the uh, a, a film many people think of a magnum opus for him I I think it's good. Like <laughs> I I you know, I think that it works 
as sort of his like it works as his last film simply because for me at least because it does have sort of like a clear story like I love the like my neighbor the Yamadas but like that's that one was sort of like all over the place and it was a lot of different short stories and and while like that one was also you know incredibly animated and everything like that I think this one sort of serves that purpose more and the fact that it ended up being his like actual last movie um is kind of like it's sad but I'm like it, it makes you like appreciate it more because he was what like 70 whenever he made this movie like it, that's a, that's so impressive like <laughs> yeah, no he was he was like 78 when it ended when it finally oh, came gosh. out oh gosh so he was like 80 <laughs> when it came out so that's like incredibly impressive and and to also like put so much time and effort into something is just i mean like that says a lot like not I mean, people can put a lot of, like, time and effort into something, and then it ends up being really bad. But this, like, totally pays off. Like, eight years? Okay, I see that. Like, that it, it like you can, you know, see, like, the quality and the time that went into this. And it wasn't just sort of, like, let's crank out one more before I die um, and try and make some money. Like, it's sad that it didn't make any money at the box office. Um, but... I mean, I I don't care because I still got to watch it either way. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> my my personal thought on the magnum opus description specifically, I I think I think at least to me the way I view the Takahata legacy is that Kaguya with Grave feel like just very fitting bookends to his career. Like Grave is Takahata at his at his most calibrated, but still like visually interesting in different ways. Kaguya is Takahata like at his most like it's uh, exploratory, like like really pa- like this is like his feels like a full on passion project, and so like it's been nice to like see the progression from Grave to Kaguya. Mm-hmm. So like, I. I I personally like slightly take Grave over Kaguya. I can see the other d- direction, but I think in general, I think rather than like elevating one over the other, they just both feel like perfect, um, per- perfect uh, um, displays of Takahata's capability as a director in like the, the the two directions that his career ended up going. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, yeah. I think it's valid. There's for sure a lot of people that think Grave of the Fireflies is one of the best movies ever. Um, think that that's that's great uh like and of course uh as as i said a few times we should we should be considering we're missing half of his his career here pre-ghibli yeah his yeah. ghibli career specifically yeah, yeah ghibli careers. but uh yeah no i think he, he he's doing more traditional stuff comes in does uh grave which is kind of like a traditionally animated at least but definitely like not typical animated fare in terms of the story um and then eventually starts pivoting hard in like what he's trying to do animation wise and ends up with uh with kaguya um which uh yeah i mean to me like a big part of the the takata legacy with when uh you look back on his um ghibli films is what he is his innovation in the medium of animation which uh this is i think a culmination of his his exploration of that um so uh it's i, I want to talk about the the animation of this film because um mm-hmm. the bet to me the most interesting part of the documentary was all the the talk of how they they make the movie of note. I didn't even know this. Takata is not a, a like a, a drawing person. Apparently, he's not even uh, much of an artist himself. He does do rough, rough storyboard sketches, which are then turned into further storyboards by his uh, his storyboard artist o- Osamu Tanabe. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's Takata comes in with with more of like a story background than a, the drawing background. But um, that that's interesting but yeah so th- this i do think like we, we the three of us talked about yamadas and this is basically the same style he was going for in yamadas is this movie um 
Apparently, uh, according to the documentary, when Yamada's uh, completely broke the Studio Ghibli production process because uh, he has, uh, like, he's just doing something completely different. Takata talks, like, passionately in the documentary about him being tired of traditional cell animation, which is uh, what Studio Ghibli does um, for the most part. Uh, and so uh, he, he wants this sketch style um, where he's really wants, he really wants to bring these initial rough sketches, which he views as passionate he likes that they're not cleaned up he wants to bring those to life um so he he animates rough sketches with like light colors and lots of white space that to me was the biggest uh thing i remembered from yamada's like and this movie is a lot of white space a lot of not finished backgrounds but there are like gorgeous watercolor backgrounds as well in both films which is very atypical um so uh yeah i mean i think the, the animation is is striking uh it's it's very polished despite its uh being like it's polished in its roughness i think the roughness and the passion well, is communicated but uh well, it, it's consistent and uh it versus maybe some of maybe versus a yamadas yeah yeah i i think what what's key about it is like well a i think that he does a good job at picking the kind of story that fits with the the style he's going for so like yamada's reason that that works is like a very basic cartoony style is because it's like a family sitcom like it's, it's as if you're like animating a newspaper comic so that that style fits for that kind of story and with with kaguya it's a similar thing where like this is a story that's taking place in like the 10th or 11th century so you're imitating the art that comes from that from that time period where it's like what just like very vague uh, vague watercolors uh, like kind of charcoal uh, pencils and the like so like you're you're imitating that and because you're doing that it looks so much different from the from the rest of animated movies so i think that he like uh he just does a really good job of like picking styles that fit with the kind of stories that he wants to tell yeah i think this fable really uh, does fit with this style i would agree um Here's what uh, Odell and LeBlanc have to say about the animation. This movie. First, they say Takata's animation is a fantastical spiritual element to adds has a fantastical spiritual element to the fairy tale, which enhances the original story. I like the spiritual like uh, description of the animation. I think. It's and, and again, that that that's another theme of Takahata's stuff. Uh, again, like going back to Pompoko as well, where like there there is this vague sense of like uh, uh, like uh, how much is uh, you know God God <laughs> directing affairs here, especially with the dad going on until we get the revelation of the third act but like that's just like another thing that that does have a through line in several of takahata's movies i think there's a sense of spirituality i think what's interesting about uh the, any sort of notion of religion in this movie is that he kind of goes against the uh the kind of buddhist philosophy of uh leaving your earthly desires behind right like that's kind of his whole message yeah. like no we yeah. want the earthly desires like that's what makes us human um, so he, he kind of has the Buddha in this villain role almost with the, the moon. I don't think it's supposed to be a villain, but it's just supposed to be like, uh, it's, uh, you know, this, this is a thing, but, uh, it was really about her, her experience as a human. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. Okay, anyway, continue the, the, the animation quote. They say, uh, Takata's project has resulted in a highly unusual form of anime, most notably with its visual design, which has such a distinctive style. Rather as in My Neighbor the Yamadas, Takata pushed the boundaries of what was perceived to be normal in anime and from a design perspective, resulting in a finished production that, that is as artistic as can be imagined in anime or any form, a combination of inked pen and watercolor or pastel art. The artwork often references compositions seen in traditional woodcuts or scrolls. 
Takada also shuns the use of consistent background art, occasionally showing the characters sit against a blank canvas. Particularly interesting is the boldness with which he sometimes in literally sketches out scenes. Characters occasionally lose form and shape before the art re- uh, reacquires definition and detail. The scene where Kagi returns to her hometown during her naming banquet is almost abstract in execution as she runs, aw- runs away, leaving trails of colorful kimono in her wake. It's remarkable because the animation feels so organic and fluid, yet is meticulously conceived and animated with absolute precision um so they hone in on one of uh the two scenes i want to highlight with well, regards to the animation here well that scene felt to me like the one scene in this movie where it's like you really like like we, we've talked about like there are show-off scenes in each of these takata movies this is and that's the, like this the, is the highlight scene yeah, yeah that's like the one scene and like it works so well for that particular moment because like uh, honestly you you want to get get across like kaguya is like losing her mind of like uh, how terrible the situation is and she just wants to get away as fast as possible she want wants this entire situation to not exist anymore so you have like the drawing like stuff like the background is like literally fading off into just like random pencil sh- uh, pencil strokes going in, in random directions as and like her her drawing specifically like kind of like loses shape as she gets further away from from the uh, from the from the capital so like at, at that that scene, I, I kind of wish there was more of that, of that, like really taking advantage of this pencil, of this pencil style that this movie is using. But that one scene is very effective in, in what it's doing, and I, I, I love it for that. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's this uh, black kind of abstractness uh, you get from the scene. April, what do you think of that scene? I that I loved that scene. I like I. I think that the way that I mean, as you guys have been discussing, I think that the way that like it's sort of composed and how Alex described that it's sort of trailing off and like losing shape. Like I think that just fits in so well with what's going on in the scene. And I don't like, I can't think of any other like person getting away with that kind of sort of style Mm. Um, or at least no one that I've come across in terms of animation. And so I like, it was, it was such a gorgeous scene despite the context of what was going on. Well, it, it feels like something you'd see in like a short film, like like randomly, like Aha's take on me music video. Like that's a that's a, a, <laughs> a, a short piece of animation that uses pencil drawn to its benefit, like in in a way like that. But like for feature films, you never really get that kind of experimentation, except in like the Takahata movies where Takahata's he just, other movies, it, yeah, yeah, like yeah. He, he he likes in inserting these into otherwise consistently yeah, styled movies. Yeah, so so like Takahata is the rarity in the in the feature film for sure. Yeah, well, he's I think he's the biggest innovator in the medium that we've ever talked about in the podcast. I mean, Miyazaki in terms of overall storytelling, but Takahata yeah. in terms of the literal art art, art of the medium. Yeah, um, Miyazaki won't go for a pencil drawn interlude. <laughs> like, no, it's not. It's not. It not doesn't seem like it's his <laughs> thing. Any of what Takahata is doing here doesn't seem like his thing. But um, yeah, I think this scene is uh, one of the all time great scenes in in uh, anything. I think this is just incredibly hugely affecting, conveying. We talked about the you know this. Is the the whole movie is about the anguish and the joy of life. This is the the the, the climax of the anguish part of uh, what we experience. I think mm-hmm. watching Kaguya's yeah. story and seeing it uh, told through um, this like jagged, uh, like very abstract, very simple. Um, like it just it's so striking that it just becomes literal. Like only a few lines on the screen at some point with like a shot of the moon and her running. Um, and her leaving, leaving the kimonos behind. Um, it's, uh, 
It's, I think also like the camera shakes at, at some point yeah, during there. Like that—that uh, uh, that was an effect that I like. It's one of the subtler ones, but like I, I, I enjoyed that as well. Just makes it that much more jarring, which adds to the drama of the scene. It's—I I think it's so incredible this scene. Um, I—it's I, in uh, there's there's a shot of uh, in, in the documentary. Apparently, this is one of not one of the later ones they did. They had this done. So when Joe Hisaishi comes on board, uh, he watches some of what they have finished with the animation. He sees this and he's like, "Oh my god, that was so good." That's Joe Joe Hisaishi. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then and then the second scene I want to highlight with the animation was not done when Hisaishi came on board and is one of the last scenes that they finish, which is uh, Kaguya and Sutamaru flying flying through the air. Um, towards the end of the movie, um, these and both both of these scenes are uh, the the moments which are uh, like forgotten, like they happen, and then uh, magically Kagi is transported back to the capital. Um, and uh, is, it's like, is this a dream? Is it not a dream? Um, probably moon moon people magic bringing her <laughs> back. I don't know. Um, like in in the flying scene, you literally see the moon uh, is the is the cause, I guess, because she uh, is is afraid of, afraid of it when they come in front of it. But yeah, them them yeah. flying through the air together. Uh, I was blown away by this scene too. The scene is the only, I believe, the only scene in the movie which uses CG. Um, and uh, so I think it's notable. I d- and so uh, Alex, you're right. Like the 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 scene before we we're talking about is the only one that uh, diverges in terms of that style. But this move, this scene also diverges in its own way because they add mm-hmm. in this uh, this the CG element to it, and um, the, they like transpose the characters over the the background, which is the whole movie, by the way. He has the they paint the watercolor background, they paint the the, the characters and the storyboard, and they try to fit them together. But um, here you're like uh, actually using the the computer to to move them, and then this. This is this is the other extreme of the movie, right? Like this is the high point of the joy that you feel through Kaguya, and uh, I also think it's absolutely incredible um, the, uh, the 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 joy that's conveyed through them flying. He's 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 like very adamant about wanting to to feel that through. And when they're talking about the music, I think the music in both of these scenes ends up being incredible from Hisaishi. Um, and yeah, any any th- thoughts on uh, this flying scene? Um. Uh- like I, it, it's a it's a good scene. I'll say that, um, in Ghibli, uh, the, the girl and boy flying, flying together through the yeah. sky yeah. is kind of a used scene. So like Look, I wish Ta- I don't think Takata's done this. So you don't. don't no, that's fall fair. Him for this. He's like okay, okay I, fair. I, I, gotta, I gotta use it. <laughs> this once. is uh, this is up to me. This is up there with the Spirited Away flying scene. I, I think like it's that good. Um, that that's my opinion. I mean, this is this is even. Uh, I feel like the, this is more of a heavy scene for them. I mean, that's like a, a climax of the film. That's a heavy, uh, like very important scene. But this is like the emotional crux the, of half of what we're going for with the movie. I think it's just so important and builds right into the what, what the ending with the the moon people coming back. And you really get the sense of the the joy she feels when she is trying to to stay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I do want to hear takes on the Kaguyasu Tamaru uh, relationship because I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit um, conflicted about it. Not a, you're not a big ship, uh, shipping. I mean, I don't think this is like supposed to be the the big ship of the movie. Yeah. It's just like this connection she has. It is at the end. Sutamara is like, uh, I don't. Uh, who cares about my wife and child? I'll run off. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's an wow, interesting rude. turn to take there, but yeah, April. What do you what do you think of their connection, Kaguya and Sutamara? Like, I think that they really wanted it to be, like, romantic. And up until, like, that point, I would say that I never really got that sense. I just looked at, um, like, Sutamaru as sort of, like, that like that placeholder as to, like, the life that she had before moving to the capital. Mm. 
And so, like, so whenever she's like, oh, like, I would have been happy with you, um, I, I didn't really, like, take that as, like, like, fueled by romance. I think for me, it felt more like she's saying, like, I would have been happy with, like, a simpler life, not in the capital, like, that, like, versus, you know, like, oh, like, I'm, I have no love in my life, like, I would, like, I would marry you kind of thing, so, and I mean, that could have been, like, a possible outcome, um, if, like, she had never gone to the capital, and I could see that, but, I mean, the scene is very pretty, and it looks very good, but for me, like, I didn't catch the romance, and I'm assuming it was supposed to be there, <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think of this as an epic romance. I think you're right when you say Sutamaru is representative of the life she had in the country. I think yeah. that's his main, kind of main purpose. The other thing is that this is, like, representative of a, young, a first love, a young love. Yeah, um, so maybe, I, like, I think, a first crush, kind of, if she were to have one. And it's, like, what we could have had it's yeah. not you know it, they, they do she does see him uh at one point in the middle of the movie but um yeah i don't think the point is that it's like an epic romance but uh we certainly feel the joy of her of like her reconnecting with someone she could have had this life with yeah and she could have had the overall life of uh being back home yeah and uh, i guess like looking at this through like a western lens you could probably like connect a lot of stuff through like the superhero stories that we're used to where like su- superman right like like he comes from an alien planet he has to learn about humanity and like why it's worth protecting and then later on he does get a love interest that he like is specifically attached to but like that is more representative of, like the fact that through his life he's learned to understand why humanity is so valuable and like Kago gets a similar thing like so tomorrow is more like it's more there just because like we can't bring that gang of four, uh, like four little kids back as adults i guess like i, I think that would have had a similar effect but like sitamara is like a specific uh human that we can like connect to and like kaguya is at this point it's like yeah like i, I am able to be happy with, with humans because there is there are good things about them so um but like i i, I just like again like this fits for like the the first part of that movie where like kaguya is like learning how how to how to how to how to be friends <laughs> with with these people and it's it's a very sweet uh, stuff that i guess get, gets tied up at the end with the sutamaro stuff yeah hot takes yeah. on lois lois lane from alex i guess um, <laughs> maybe, i don't know if that was a hot take but uh no and i do think there is a big connection i felt the connection i mean i th- again i don't think it's a yeah. grand romance but i think there's a connection with sutamaro and kaguya and there's definitely a connection and i think the fact that like um, like he continues to call her little bamboo simply because he doesn't know her as Princess Kaguya, um, or he doesn't even know about that name. Yeah. So I think that sort of helps play into that like connection that she's sort of missing in her life. Um, at that point in time as well, like he calls her little bamboo. He doesn't know her as Princess Kaguya. Princess Kaguya is someone that is like being sought off you know, being sought out by male suitors who just want you know, want her because she's pretty and they don't really know her or any, you know, anything along those lines. So I think there's that, that, like that point is to be made as well. And we, we know that like names are always like a big thing in um, like Japanese, like folklore and things like that. So I think that adds to it. 
yeah, we've talked about the theme of names and identity and how that plays in. I, I, I do. It's possible he does know that she's Kage just because she's well known throughout. But like to me, that to her, to him, that's not her, right? That's uh, mm-hmm. that's that's someone she doesn't he doesn't even know. Um, and yeah, and I think like it's, it's a little weird that this uh, potential romance is happens from her being like a little kid and and he's much older, but then she's like fast growing. So it's like, how does that work? But uh, but you know, I think <laughs> the important thing is it's from her perspective. So she's uh, like she sees him as uh, as this figure. We so I do think the whole movie is from Kaguya's perspective. So, like, we see the uh, affection she feels for him, and uh, we kind of like understand that based on the experiences she went through growing up, growing up with him, and also that he's representative of the life she had to leave behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that she so. was forced out of. So, I think there's yeah. something to, to be said about that as well. The fact that she had no choice in the matter, which I mean. Uh, you know, going back to the theme of this movie, we don't have a choice in being alive and we don't get a choice in growing, you know, up older, whatever, sometimes. So, yeah, I, definitely. Um, and uh, I think that br- that brings up the character of the dad, who I think is I'm interested to hear your guys opinion on uh, the, the bamboo cutter himself uh, or uh, Miyatsuko. But um interested is he a sympathetic figure in the story is he a villainous figure or is he like more somewhere somewhere in the middle i think he's all of those things yeah it's interesting (laughs) does that that mean you like him because he is uh, so complex um i think he's human but like i do but again i guess like this is just from me in my like western culture perspective like i definitely like don't like agree with how pushy he was with what he wanted for her but i think but i that's you know something that happens worldwide um it was very like sweet you know in the beginning how you know he cared so much for her but even in the beginning you could sort of see like the toxicity of the relationship especially whenever like the boy you know the boys are like cheering like little bamboo and he's like princess come here princess come here um and he's like getting like you can see him getting like flustered and upset because she I mean, she's, you know, was going towards the boys, but then, you know, going back to herself or back to her father. Uh, I'm, Alex, I'm what with, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm with April, though. Like, it's a bit complicated because like on space. No, the dad is not a sympathetic character because it's ignoring uh, Kaguya and to send his wife in many instances. Large, large extent. Yeah. yeah. But, but, uh, but at the same time, like that's the setting of this movie. And it's like, it's the 11th century. So men, men are the heads of the household. They make all the decisions and that's just how it was. So, uh, and, and, uh, and I'm sure, like in folklore as well, like these kinds of stories, part of it is like uh, like instilling, like you gotta respect your elders and the decisions that they make and stuff. So, like, I, I don't want to say outright that it's bad, but like at the same time, like the dad makes so many questionable decisions here. Um, in addition, like jumping off of what April April said, it like at the in the first half. But the fact that like he's very um, uh, resentful of the country life, like he calls them hillbillies, even though like they probably lived there for a while themselves, like feel, feels a bit off. But um, um, I guess like once you are presented with gold coming out of a bamboo shoot, your your perspective on life changes, maybe. Uh, but like uh, yeah, so. I, I, 
at the same time, like in the th- in the third act, they like really try to you know bring you back. Like no, no, like he's he still cares about Kaguya. He he wants what's best for her. Uh, he gets into very protective dad mode. Like we won't let them take you f- from us, you know. So like that that like tries to like bring you back to like no, no, dad's a good person at heart. He's just got a little misled by like society and what like what society tells us is important. But um, so, like, I, I think that the movie is trying to make Dad, you know, be in be in the right by the end of this. But uh, yeah, it's it's a bit tough to watch, especially in in the second act when we got to deal with all the suitor stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I think he even in the third act, I think he uh, it's, it's it, I mean, at the end, it's pretty it's pretty sad when they're they're like left behind and crying. But he he's like, I think he wants to protect Kage because he it's, it, that he's. She's his. Like I think that's how she yeah. views Kage, he views Kage throughout the whole movie. Even at the end, you know, like he's on the right side of not wanting to her to leave, but he he always really views her as a a means to an end for for his life. Um, not that villainously or specifically. I think I don't think he comes mm-hmm. across like super conniving like that. It's just what he's he's doing in his very selfish perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he's a really interesting character in the movie. Honestly, maybe in the uh, you could almost characterize him as Takata's version of these uh, really complex female villains that Miyazaki has made, like a Lady Eboshi type. I think he's kind of the villain of the movie for large parts of it. Um, I, w- I would say so. Like, he's like a less, um, like, outright villain. Um, it, simply yeah, because... He's, he's in a her- heroic position, but he has clearly yeah. continuously takes villainous actions. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, I mean, like, I guess... You, you sort of have to break like that stigma that a villain is someone who wants to take over the world. And while he may have had, I mean, but every villain has like quote unquote good intentions um, in their pursuit of whatever. Um, and so I guess you could say his good intentions are, he just wants what's best for his daughter. But at the same time, like he, you know, he's sort of taking a lot of actions that are, you know, obviously, not making her happy and i think that all gets especially like culminated in the like whenever she is saying to her father like if that's you know like if you really want me to go marry like the emperor or whoever just so you can have that seat like i'll go do it but then i'm gonna kill myself and so like i think that like sort of is the culmination of their relationship as well like she's like if that's what's going to make you happy fine i'll do it but then i'm gonna do like i'm gonna release myself of this so yeah it's, it's, that's brutal uh that part um yeah i mean i think uh he, he, he takes all these these unsympathetic actions but the movie does uh not it's not interested in in painting him as a uh a bad uh, just a straightforward bad person i think he has interesting complexities of emotions he you, you see you feel for him at different points the movie also starts from his perspective it's really interesting um so i think he he ends up being like this this pretty like uh, complex character that you, you feel a lot of different things for um and in the documentary you see uh voice actor takeo chi um who i think dies before this movie ends up being released but he's like struggling with the uh the character and trying to find what the character like is his drives and it's it's inter- it does i think it plays into how this is such a uh hard to pin down character and the, the voice actor was uh really uh, trying to to figure it out uh, along with takata as they're making the movie um the the mom uh is also the narrator of the movie 
uh, is which I think is interesting. Um, that kind of movie or movies that have narrators a lot of the time. I've d- definitely noticed, and uh, this this one not as heavy, I think, as some of his other ones. Like, definitely like Bumpoko. Um, yeah. But uh, she... I was like the narration in this movie like worked, especially because the like when it did happen, it was usually like, and so this happened, and then three years later, and then you're like right back into it. So yeah, yeah uh minimal uh narration but i I think the mom's a a good character too not a not as much to do as the dad i love the scene of the two of them in in the garden a few times um with with kaguya um but uh yeah i I think i think she and i at some point i feel like she was not in the movie much and then i think uh there ends up being enough depth there for a character that i I think she's she is a memorable character yeah yeah i like Uh, the uh like the mom is very much like the opposing force to the dad almost in a sense because even from like the beginning when Kaguya first comes you know to them like she grows like she turns into like a baby as soon as like she touches the mom and then like there's like a moment and I remember like the dad is like oh give her here and the mom's like she doesn't want you she wants to be with me Mm -hmm. like and I think that's like looking or thinking back on it that's a little bit of like foreshadowing when you think about it because even like when they're in the capital like the mom still has her garden like she's still you know like making cloth and clothes you know so i think that that says like a lot about the mom that she's that like she's that representation as well of the rural life that kaguya like enjoyed that's a guess a good call with the, the them in the beginning also at that part of the movie then uh uh, mom uh, magically uh, produces milk in order to feed Kaguya. Uh, yeah, to, which is uh, interesting. I, I, so, as a a woman, I fully enjoyed that scene because she just <laughs> stops, and I was like, "Oh no!" Like, and you could see the look on her face, and I was like, "There's something happening to her specifically." Like, and then she's like, "Wait, here, I got this," and I was like. Oh, okay. Like there you go. <laughs> Especially because I've had I've had like had friends who've like had babies before, and so that's they kind of like described it in like the like what I saw. They're just, it just like happens. Like one day, like you're just normal, and the next day you you're producing like milk for a baby. <laughs> so and that's not even real magic with uh, yeah that's not even real magic that's just <laughs> life <laughs> wait so but in the movie it's magic right yeah well yeah she has a give birth to her right? oh, okay so, yeah yeah yeah. yeah i was because, gonna say like this is the second takahata movie with magical body parts yeah. not as so, in this one in um, real life you have to have like you have to actually be pregnant right okay okay like trigger yourself <laughs> to be like hey you need to produce milk for this thing you're growing inside of you <laughs> yeah uh yeah but the, that's that's part of, but for briefly i guess on the mythology around that topic but yeah that's part of the magic of kaguya growing up very fast in the beginning mm. um which uh and and you later i think you later learn she's the, like a moon person and uh i guess that that vaguely uh is a result of that um and also yeah yeah so i think the the sparse like fantasy mythology elements throughout but uh culminating with the moon the moon people coming down i guess is probably the biggest one um but uh, i think used to uh to striking effect especially uh in the beginning of the movie um i wanted to talk more about kaguya's character specifically um which i know we have a lot but uh there's a few 
other elements too, especially the um the, this this whole uh, notion of the her experiences in the capital and the the suitors, but also the uh, her accustomed to the growing accustomed to the, the conventions of being a noble lady in older Japan. Um, and I, you know, I feel like, uh, seeing all this through Kaguya's lens and her emotions with dealing all this and rejecting this is, um, the, the kind of feminism Takahata is imbuing into the story, which I think is potentially there even to a certain extent in the original. I'm not sure, but, uh, you get uh, a lot of her, uh, dealing with the, the conventions of, uh, of, of what being, uh, a noble woman, uh, in this time period, uh, consists of. Um, and, uh, yeah, we talked about this kind of anguish period of her life, uh, that, that's, uh, all, all, uh, in, in that. And then everything with the suitors who she, um, eventually, like, uh, uses to, to, like, it has her sense of agency kind of, uh, forced upon the, the situation that she's in. Um, but, uh, I think, uh, it's, it's interesting looking at this as a, um, what the oldest Japanese story and kind of how Takahata tells it through kind of a modern lens with, uh, with, with more modern gender roles. April, how do you, th- how did you- it come across to you? Um, I thought it was very like, hmm, I'm trying to think of how to describe it like appropriately and put it into words, but I really, um, I liked how Kaguya, even in like a time period where women didn't have a lot of agency um, or control over their lives, essentially, I love that there were moments where she did and she had those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, it's very unfortunate that some of those opportunities were her just sort of giving in to, you know, her father's wishes in a sense, um, like learning, like, actually like taking becoming a noble lady very seriously um you know and sort of like settling down in that um but i do i love like the moment whenever the five princes are in front of her and she and they're like describing her and they um you know one calls her like a jeweled branch and like a robe or something along you know those descriptions and then she's like all right well go find me these treasures like i love that she took control of that situation and like (laughs) and then she even knew like how to counter whenever they did eventually come back you know and obviously there was the fake jeweled branch which i was really like curious i was like well how are you gonna like fake that and i was like oh i guess someone could make it but then how would you find out and then the guy showed up and i was like perfect like (laughs) And then she, like, tells the one guy to, like, set the robe on fire. And I was like, all right. Like, <laughs> so I really love that, in a, in a sense, she was able to control that situation to her wishes. Um, but the whole, like, scene with the, um, the one emperor yeah. guy, that one was, or, yeah, whatever. Uh, that one was a little triggering for me. Um, I mean, it was very, like, realistic and totally, like, 100% believable. But I was just like, Ugh, I, I don't like this. This makes me feel dirty. I want to go, like, <laughs> go wash myself after this. I'm glad that she was able to find a way out of it. But at the same time, I was just like, ugh. Like, I hate men. Why? <laughs> so Yeah, no, the the emperor of Japan, yeah. And he yeah, he, gra- he grabs her. And, yeah. Um, th- that's what causes her to... to- 
not on purpose cry out to the moon. Yeah. Um, and to want to go back. So yeah. I think that, and I, I think like even in that moment, like it says just a lot about because, you know, there's always like consequences for our actions. And so ma- maybe she was much too quick to be like, I want to go back to the, like, I want out of here at any cost kind of thing. Um, but cause I mean, there are things that have taken place in my life that I wish I could go back to the moon for. Like, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, um, so I mean, like, I guess, and I think that's also why, like, the ending struck me and was uh, felt very tragic to me as well, as well, just because, like, in in a in a hasty moment or in a tr- in a very bad moment. She, you know, she just wanted out of it and they were like, okay, well, we're going to just completely take you away. And she didn't like, again, she didn't have a choice in that matter either. So I like the moments where they did give her agency, but like the moments that were very realistic, I was very sad during. So <laughs> That's a good point. This movie is like littered with uh, her, her not having control over her own fate, um, whether it be the moon people taking her back or her dad forcing her to the capital. Yeah. Um, it's very, it is very sad. And yeah, the, the, you know, the scene when the emperor, you know, assaults her, I think it's very, uh, very deep that the, the one thing that makes her, um, like, like not want to, to live and to, to be, not want to feel, feel the human experience, which is what the, all the movie's about is this, this assault and, and, and taps into like one of the, the least uh, moments of agency and one of the worst things like I think that resonates in in uh, older Japan to to modern times that that women and uh, and other people go through. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I definitely found that very powerful, that scene. And it, it felt very modern, despite also feeling realistic to the time period the movie's taking place in. Yeah. And I think another like scene that <clears throat> really stood out for me in terms of like Kaguya is um, just before like the party or her her name celebration. Mm. Uh, she you, like, well, it's during it. And she's just like, what is the point of a party if I don't get to enjoy it? Like, mm. this is a party for me. And I think I like because that then leads into the scene with, you know, the kimonos like flying off of her and everything like that. But like whenever she spoke those words, I was like, I, I felt very like connected to her. And I was like, ooh, sis, like, you were born in the wrong time, like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, because, I mean, she's right. Like, what is the point of a party? Because she wanted to invite people. And it was like, well, this is why, like, because you wouldn't get to enjoy their company. Um, But but then even after that, like, that's whenever she sort of really gives in. And, like, one of the next scenes afterwards is, like, her having her eyebrows plucked out. um, And... Yeah, <laughs> that hurt. Yeah. yeah, moments of her, and then and then also, you know, talking about her agency, she does ultimately kind of rebuff uh, the suitors, and there's a period of her getting to do what she wants, and Lady mm-hmm. Sagami leaves, and uh, there's a wonderful scene with the cherry blossoms. Um, I, uh, yeah, I. I teared up whenever she presented her with the cherry blossom tree. I was like, oh gosh, like. <laughs> uh. Yeah, Alex, how do you think um, Kage is a character? ultimately turns out is, is she one of the more memorable maybe ghibli protagonists looking back or do you think more of the film as a whole 
Um, I think she she's definitely a stronger one. I could see people under underrating her for sure because like there's a lot going on beneath the surface. Um, in addition to what you guys were talking about with like the the suitor stuff, like I, I think also they do a good job of uh, looping in the overall theme of of humanity as well. Like th- there's that scene where she's talking with the lady Sagami and like li- she's laying out the different things that she needs to do to the point of like blackening her teeth is like well like people are gonna see that when i laugh and the lady's like well you're not supposed to laugh when you're late like well then i'm not even human you know so it's like this like dehumanization of uh, in this movie it's specific to the royals but i think that definitely the subtext is that in general women are (laughs) dehumanized by like having to follow all these social norms and further on like with the rejecting the suitors like she she makes a no like the they're all fake gifts because that's how they see me is just like kind of a f- fake treasure that can be like played around with and so like just like the the way that they like go very like that they they in the text of the film it's specifically about the the royalness of it and like feeling fake because she's coming from a rural background but i definitely think that the movie does does well to show like this is just like the female experience in this time period and it's very unjust that people have to deal with that so like uh, i I think that um uh, kaguya in the in those scenes while it does feel a little bit like you know heightened wisdom like to the point where like especially those scenes where all five of them are like sitting in front like it definitely gives off like king solomon vibes almost but so like it, it does feel a little different from the rest of the movie but at the same time i think that it keeps with with the themes that uh kaguya has has throughout i think uh with with you know with this as a summary i think with the things especially like blackening of the teeth and stuff there's definitely customs that are about uh that what women go through in uh 10th century japan when the movie is taking place or some sometime in older in japan um but the the uh i think this this movie has surprisingly universal and powerful uh kind of feminist uh, themes and messages um considering the time period and that a man in his late 70s is making the movie um i think that's uh to me one of the more striking aspects that you end up getting from kaguya yeah and I yeah. I definitely wouldn't like I mean I don't know if it if it ever received the type of criticism that it was like sort of anti-feminist or anything like that but I think that like I appreciate that Takahata stuck very closely to like actual Japanese culture at that time when it came to like the world that Kaguya was living in so which makes you know the small moments where she does, you know, make decisions for herself and um, everything like that, like that much more impactful. Well, if anything, I'd be interested to see if there's criticism of him, like uh, dealing with tradition in this sense, like exposing its uh, its thing. Because like it meant some people like have a problem, right, with like applying modern norms to like the 10th century and all. Yeah. But like that, this is like a display. Like, no, like we need to like shine a light that like that this was terrible back then and and today. Uh, so like uh, pe- people who are a bit too precious with their tradition, I could see criticizing stuff like this. Yeah. Interesting. I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not aware of any sort of, of criticism for Kaguya, but uh, like I said, pretty universal critical praise. But I also don't have like a Susan Napier chapter on this book, unfortunately. So, or on this uh, on this movie. So, um, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think uh, interesting discussion of of those themes. Um, 
And uh, another, I guess, other we've we've touched on this. I think um, more subtle in this movie than say, and only yesterday. But I think this this in terms of environmentalism, talking about Studio Ghibli, I think we definitely have uh, this theme of wanting to go back to a country life that uh, pervades most of Takata's films. I would say, yeah, only yesterday. It's one of the main things going on. Um, and, uh, even like a Pompoco, you know, they're resisting the urbanization, of course. Um, so, uh, I, I think, uh, here's another example when she's like kind of learning for her, her simpler, her simple life. I don't think it comes across so much as, um, kind of, uh, an environmental moral so much as maybe we just wanting a, a simpler life, wanting to go back to where she had control. Um, at the very least more subtle if it, if it does come across as maybe this environmental moral, um, yeah, so I, I, I think, uh, you do, you do kind of continue all these, uh, it does have all these elements of, uh, of previous Takahata films and Studio Ghibli films in general, even if he's working within the context of a pretty rigid structure from the original fable. Yeah, I mean, like, the fact that, like, that for, like, at least for me, I enjoyed the, the first third of the movie. I can see people maybe complaining that it's a bit slow, but, like, I think it's it's good in, like, displaying, like, how she's growing up in this uh, in this setting. Like, you know, uh, just doing, like, f- things like learning how to how, how to crawl and walk based on watching the frogs and getting in, into shenanigans with the, the crew, like, stealing melons and, like, cutting them in the bush, you know? It's, like... Like establishing like this is like you know the the how she's like growing up you know like uh, having these like very uh, normal experiences without any worry for like what people think of her really like that, that like to the point where like she gets called a little bamboo a lot but, like she finds no issue with it because like she's in this re- relatively safe space mm-hmm. uh, compared to like the shift that we get when we, we go to the to the capital and everything it, it feels a lot more threatening so like I, I I enjoy that we spend a lot of time in in that setting in the in the first part of the movie. It, and like it, there's not really that much going on except just watching her grow before our eyes and but i think that that is a big piece of why you feel connected to her and despair with her when she goes through all that stuff uh, uh, once the move happens yeah definitely i think yeah. i think uh, i also really like the, the first uh the first third but i, I like all the all the thirds but um i think it's purposefully different so i guess exactly what you said so that you you get the sense of joy of life for when she goes through the despair of uh being forced into the situation and forced to fit into the these cultural norms um and I, I want yeah well should be noted the the little bamboo yeah she's called uh takenoko and hime uh hime by her parents just as much as she is uh kaguya if not more i think um so also interesting things probably more so with uh, identity and names um as she's uh, not given a specific name hime is kind of her name princess um for for most of her life it seems like but even that is like it's a title mm. you know what i mean so yeah that that's probably why like her preference was you know was always little bamboo just because it was it was a name you given see to how her. that'd be appealing yeah yeah well it was a name given to her based off like who who she was and how she acted versus like she she was just instantly a princess to her father or to yeah. others so well, it was more like ask like this is what i want you to become yeah versus, uh, little bamboo is like I, I'm, I'm that's what i am you know it's, yeah. So, so she's also a little princess before she turned into a baby right in the beginning. Yeah. Um, interesting. Um, any any further? We talked a lot about it, but any further thoughts on the final scene of when the moon people come down? Um, I think such a, such a striking uh, sequence throughout the entire thing. 
Um, I, I love the, the use of music of the, the kind of just this like folksy, joyful music of the moon people coming down, even though it's like ominous and, uh, and then you get kind of more tragic music and then it cut to when she's being taken back, the, the joyful music kind of resumes and it's, uh, very, very, uh, clashing with, uh, what you, what you hear versus what you're feeling at the, that time. Yeah. I think that that like the the really like upbeat music almost is very like striking (laughs) and i definitely was like paying attention to the music as as i was watching everything else like like unfold and i was just like why is this music so happy can it stop being happy for like two seconds please like (laughs) there's there's a tragedy taking place yeah, I definitely and, and we noting the music. This uh the score is by Joe Hisaishi. This is the first time Hisaishi worked with Takahata. So um he's he's all exclusively does the scores of Miyazaki movies. Uh Takahata eventually ends up wanting Hisaishi for this film and Hisaishi had wanted to uh work with with Takahata. Actually Takahata was the person who initially hired Hisaishi to work with Miyazaki on Nausicaa as he was the producer of Nausicaa. Um, so he kind of come full circle with, uh, with Hisaishi and Takata. And, uh, I think, uh, I, I haven't dove into the score qu- quite as much. Hisaishi is prominently featured in the documentary, which I think is very cool. But, um, it's uh, a lot of, uh, really interesting musical choices, such as at the ends there. Um, and, uh, probably a lot of music that fits the, the time period. Um, well, that, that kind of style. That that song like recurs about like the bugs and the beasts and all that. Like is yeah, that, is that, in, ori- is that original movie. or existing? Do you know? I don't know. I would assume original, um, but it is in the soundtrack. I think those those songs. So it seems seems original. So yeah, I guess that would be a part of the score. Assuming. Yeah, because like that that's like another piece of mythology in this movie that like the only thing she know uh, she like remembers from the moon time before the revelation happens is apparently that song that she just had in her head and like it, multiple times like she like keeps on singing after everyone is done and like it's like a lot sadder i, I enjoyed that bit <laughs> yeah yeah and her say her singing when she's revealing her what she remembers about being a moon person is very striking too yeah yeah um i love the end credit song um which is when i remember this life by Nikaido Kazumi, um, which uh, yeah, the, the, the another prominent part of the documentary is Takato. Specifically, she he was a fan of this this singer and uh, they going to record the this this song Ghib- Ghibli songs. Uh, probably uh, not an underreported story, but um, like twenty incredible end credit songs in <laughs> across the Ghibli movies, like uh, incredible success rate with uh, the, these these really great songs um i love how that feels after the uh and he he says he wanted like a a softer thing after kind of the despair of the movie so you get this um this warmer softer song out of like the the kind of sad ending you get you get um but yeah i think the the music ends up being a a great component uh of the film as well overall were there any scenes we haven't talked about that that you guys are thinking of um, well, I, I want to say the like the actual like very, very beginning of like her growing up and then like raising her like j- just that like we've talked about like bits and pieces, but just overall, um, a the baby noise I do not like. <laughs> that was very <laughs> disturbing to hear multiple times. Like it's it feels like the the stock crying noise that you hear in a lot of movies, and it's just like very jarring when it happens. But 
But B, it's very cute to see the parents like so happy, like raising her, uh, raising her, and like being like, um, like both amazed at like the different stuff that happens, but then also like rolling with it. Uh, it's, even with that, well, that scene where she's like learning how to crawl and walk, and like you can like just like sense like their like joy of like, oh wow, she's like fine doing it. Like, uh, there with like. Uh, movies that involve babies like it's it, for me it's a tough sell like this is like one of the movies that like it most feels like it it depicts the joy of raising a child like uh, i feel like a lot of a lot of movies like it doesn't that doesn't quite come across but the the the, the way they they do these baby scenes like uh, it's one of the more effective versions of this that i've seen yeah, I think uh, yeah. a pretty joyful baby, and we're primarily intending to communicate the joy of uh, of that at that time. I think that comes through. Um, I think her uh, Kagi is like a, a sister, like her her servant assistant lady. I think she's very funny throughout the movie, um, with like the straight the straight face, I guess. Um, the uh, Lady Sagami, any thoughts? I don't know. I think she, she ends up being a pretty traditional I type like- of uh, that figure. Yeah, she wasn't, I mean, she wasn't super standout, I guess. <laughs> I mean, all, all the stuff with the, that results, uh, yeah, Alex. Well, uh, like looping back to the mu- to the music part of this movie, the the scenes where where Kaguya is playing that instrument with the with la- with the lady uh, are, are pretty fun. Uh, the koto, yeah, and like especially that scene where like she's like l- learning, and she's like doing the lessons. She's like sort of good at it, but once her dad shows up, she's like perfect at it. Uh, and the, you know, like there, there's like bits of humor like that sprinkled through through the movie that are, are that are good moments. But also, just in general, anytime that she plays that is just like a, a really, ni- a really nice pieces of music, and I want to. Uh, it does inspire me to like go look up more music with that instrument being used. Yeah, I think yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to say the uh, all the, the suitor stuff. I think there's some fun sequences with the results of them. I loved um, the one that brought her the flower, and then when they pull up the screen, his wife is there. <laughs> I was like, that's that's a move. I'm I'm there for that. <laughs> that's good. There's the guy on the ship, which is apparently right from the fable, but I think that's a pretty funny sequence too. Yeah, Maybe he's on the ship, and then there the guy just dies. Um. <laughs> I, I guess that's also a cool, uh, a cool animated scene, like the dragons like are appearing yeah. as clouds, yeah. it's, like yeah, their like heads are like slowly popping through, and like also like the waves come like crashing down on the ship. Like that, that's also like a pretty impressive piece of animation in this movie. Yeah. A lot of effort put into that very minor scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why this movie took eight years to make. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. So, um, well, other, I guess, random other background stuff from the the documentary that. Uh, so this this movie is produced by uh, Yoshikai Nishimura, not uh, Suzuki. Um, as Suzuki's basically like, I need to, producing Takata is a full time job. I think someone else needs to do this. Uh, <laughs> So Yoshikai Nishimura apparently spent every day for 18 months trying to convince Takahata to make one last movie. Um, that's what he claims in the documentary. Uh, so there you go. And yeah, then, in, uh, in Kingdom, he also seemed very haggard. He, like there was a lie where he was like, <laughs> I've spent like three years thinking just about Takahata. I'm not lying. So it's like, <laughs> it's like okay, you're having a, a bit of a day. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's his, his first produced Ghibli movie, and then he goes. Uh, he's the well, he's the founder of Studio Panak, which is oh, where a lot of the Ghibli crew goes okay. to. Um, so he produces Mary and the Witch's Flower, and hopefully some other movies from that studio. Um, but yeah, he, he's I think he's involved with the the last Ghibli film as well, which we'll talk about next week. Um, so it was, it was cool seeing him. Um, oh, wait, I want to note that the voice the voice acting was done before the animation was done. There's a script, so like unlike Miyazaki, there's an actual script, and then the voice acting was done very much in a script driven process, and then the movie was animated. Um, whereas um, you see in the Miyazaki documentaries uh, that the voices for uh, were, were the sp- specifically the one notable voice acting choice that we I talked about in in the last podcast was done uh, uh, after the or after the animation. Um, and I also want to note Kazuo, uh, Kazuo Oga is the art director and does all the watercolor backgrounds on the movie. Um, but it was pretty, very interesting to see the, the artistic process. That's still definitely one of my main takeaways. We talked a lot after about, uh, all the kind of narrative and elements to it, which is very strong, but the, uh, I got to think of this high up there for some of the most gorgeous movies you've, you'll, you'll ever see with this, especially ones with distinctive styles. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think I was going to say this earlier, but I just, I just do feel very blessed that we did get this one last Takahata film. Um, yeah. that does feel so much like a culmination of a lot of things of what he's going for. I do think this is going to go down as one of the all time great animated films ever. And, uh, and, uh, you know, some people already talk about it in that vein, including myself. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, you know, so it's clearly so much uh, effort went into eventually making this uh, and uh, Takahata put put so much of himself into it. And I'm, you know, it, not to, you, you never want to kind of devalue people as uh, their creations. Um, so I, he his life stands on its own without it. But it's also <laughs> really incredible that we end up getting getting this movie. And he, he also seems uh happy that uh he he ends up to, he's happy he does end up getting these and does seem very happy with the the quality at the end which is which is nice that's good um alex any final thoughts on kaguya yeah um kaguya is a visually impressive movie i think that there's a lot beneath the surface uh, of this movie to to dig into as we've uh, talked about and in general, like, uh, like, yeah, I, I think I said this uh, on the, the Yamada's episode too, but like Takahata is just like an, a very, it's, it's been a, a great discussion piece because like he, he's a director who will like take a, a lot of big swings with, with each uh, production. So it feels very fitting that the, this is the last, uh, the last of his uh, movies. Uh, I'm disappointed that there aren't uh, more after this, but this feels like a, like a good place to to leave off. So um, yeah, Kaguya is, is definitely uh, a nice uh, a nice piece to end on here. Yeah, and if, if you're if, if you've loved watching these Takata ones, we can go. I haven't personally, but we can go back and watch some of his very early movies, some of the original anime films in Japan he, he directed. Well, what, what, one last thing I want to bring from the documentary is like uh, my, Miyazaki said something like, "Yeah, like Heidi was Takahata's best work." <laughs> it's just like, okay, like sure. Yeah, no, I mean, no, Heidi gets brought up a bunch by them. Uh, is an anime series they made. It's not even a movie. So, um, I'm, yeah, I'd love to go back and watch. Heidi, Girl of the Alps. Um, yeah, Miyazaki keeps the goats from those. They feature. Yeah, yeah. He was like picking them into like a kitchen or whatever, <laughs> like get them so by the, the goats from Heidi. Yeah. Okay. Uh, April, final thoughts. Um, no, just that this is a really like it's such a great movie, and it's 
it's so underrated and I think that more people need to watch it. So I think, yeah. I think people would like appreciate it. Like, especially cause you can tell that like so much went into it. I mean, not just like eight years, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I, yeah. I mean, I think it is, it is uh thought of very highly, but also it's still underwatched by, by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, Takata's first film he directed, uh, The Great Adventure of Oris, Prince of the Sun, in 1968. I think he's like 30. Um, and this oh is gosh. like seriously one of the OG uh, anime movies by from Studio, I think Toei is where they were originally. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that, that would be if you want to go back to, to all those. And I think the Panda Go, the go, go, panda, go panda movies. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm also on Takahata's Wikipedia page. I guess he also did some collaboration for The Red Turtle. I, I've heard of that movie. Yeah, he was involved in The Red Turtle, which was not Studio Ghibli, but they contributed animation, I think, to that. Yeah, um, and I've, I've heard that that one's also like visually unique. So maybe that's where I got to go next. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Um, the very later on. Um, I guess that was after. Yeah, I don't know what the timeline was on his contributions to that uh but yeah so i'm very happy to talk about kage and all of takata's works like i said that's been one of my big takeaways from this series was um having such a reverence for for takata and as his films um and uh it's uh love kaguya one i should watch more often not not like the super breezy watch uh that you can just go to but i think it's uh one when i should make sure i'm revisiting uh, along with some of these miyazaki films for sure uh let us know what you thought of kaguya anywhere you can find all the ways to contact us at overlyanimated.com thanks to all our patrons for this podcast uh you can support us via patreon at patreon.com slash overly animated uh thanks to the patron of the podcast connie and thanks to our patron executive producers ryan seabox features hugh michael needle and phonician uh the last ghibli rewatch will be next week when marnie was there um so you know not, not very similar to this movie but uh we'll be getting into everything from when marnie was there it'll be a fun one to end on i will see all you all of you there thanks for listening bye bye, bye.